0: Chosen as a title of my message today, Acting Christianly. Acting Christianly. Taking the word Christian and turning it into an adverb, I don't know if it is ever used that way or not, but I think that is the essence of what Peter is talking about in our text today in 1 Peter 3 verses 8 and 9. And what we are learning is the difference Christ makes in the way that his people relate to those around them. 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. In this section, we have the instructions that inform in verses 8 and 9, and then the text from the Old Testament book of Psalms that supports what Peter says in verses 10 through 12, and we are just going to be taking the first part, verses 8 and 9 today, and reserve the second part, Lord willing, for next Lord's Day. But how did we come to this particular theme in Peter's first epistle? Well, let's look at that today, as we see in verse 8, Christ-like attitudes, and in verse 9, Christ-like responses. And it all connects with what has gone before, and we recognize that by that opening word, finally, finally, to sum up, literally, now the end. Notice, please, less than halfway through the book, now the end. Peter was a preacher, wasn't he? But now the end, not of his epistle, but the end of a section of instruction that began actually back in chapter 2 in verse 11. And so what he's giving us now is a concluding section, a concluding instruction that connects with all that has gone before back to chapter 2, where, first of all, he dealt with Christian testimony in a general statement in verses 11 and 12, And then he dealt with Christians' relationships in three areas of life in verses 13 and following. You remember verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God, In the day of visitation, the Christian's testimony before a skeptical world with works which the world can observe and will be used by God to bring some of them to Christ in their day of visitation. When God visits them, they will be brought to Christ and our testimony of Christians, if it has been this kind of testimony, will be an instrument in the hands of God to bring sinners to Christ. And then Peter specifies what kind of behavior he has in mind. And it's a bit surprising to us, but he talks about three areas of relationship. Beginning in verse 13 and going through chapter 3, verse 7, he talks first of all about citizenship, secondly about employment, and third about marriage. The Christian and his government. And what is the primary... Responsibility. What, what gives us a good testimony in the world in our relationship to government? Submission. Verse 13, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the King as supreme and so forth. Well, how about our employment relationships? What about our, our working world? Our working relationships best exemplifies Christ before the world. And the answer turns out to be the same, submission. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Well, what about marriage? What about our marriage relationships? What in that relationship is a testimony to the world? And that too, at least in part of the marriage relationship, is the same answer, submission. For in chapter 3 verse 1 we read wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands that if even that even if some do not obey the word they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And then as we learned last Lord's Day in this relationship Peter also addresses the authority and it's the only one of these three that he does but he also has a word for Christian husbands and they have a great responsibility In order to make their marriage a God-honoring one. And for their marriage to be a good testimony before a watching world. And so we read in verse 7. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. And husbands are instructed to live with their wives in an understanding way and to honor them. And that. Is a powerful testimony before an unbelieving world. But now he comes to the summary, the conclusion really of it all, when he says in verse 8, Finally, all of you. Finally, all of you. Now the end. In summary, all of you. And here are some instructions that apply to all believers. All believers certainly are citizens in some governmental arena, not all believers are servants who are answerable to an earthly employer or master, and certainly not all Christians are wives and not all Christians are husbands, but all Christians are now called upon for these general principles of how we relate to those around us. In verses 8 and 9. And so this includes all other relationships that have not been specified. Beyond citizenship, beyond employment, beyond marriage, here are the instructions that will make Christians a powerful testimony before a watching world. And then in verse 8, he gives five Christ-like attitudes which we are to exemplify. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. In this verse, Peter evidently has the church primarily in view. And the way that Christians relate to other Christians, to other members of the body of Christ is a very powerful ingredient to our testimony before a watching world And that is more clearly seen when we don't act this way and our divisiveness and our bickering and our fighting becomes such a bad testimony before the world around us. And we all know that to be the case. And so what we have in verse 8 in many ways is an ideal portrait of the church. This is what church relationships ought to look like. And we all have some things to work on here. Of these five attributes, there is a connection between one and five and between two and four, and number three seems to be the hub that radiates the others out from it. One and five talk primarily about how we think in our relationship to other believers, and two and four talks about how we feel in our relationships to other believers, and number three includes both how we think as well as how we act when we are around other believers. So what are these required attitudes? One, two, three, four, five. Number one, unity. Number two, compassion. Number three, love. Number four, sympathy. And number five, humility. First of all, unity. Finally, all of you, be of one mind. Literally, same think. Think the same. Now, we know from studying Scripture elsewhere that Peter is not requiring total conformity, that all of our thoughts, all of our opinions be identical. But he is requiring that there be unity of attitude, unity of disposition, in spite of whatever differences we may have. Differences are all right as long as they are not outside the bounds of Scripture. Differences in the body of Christ are good. Differences will enrich the body of Christ. Not all of us are hands. Not all of us are feet. Not all of us are the same part of the body, is one way that Paul described it elsewhere. And there will be differences. And and we are people from many different backgrounds and many different cultures. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is made up of a great variety of people from many different places. And yet there are areas where we must think alike or we will disgrace the testimony of Christ before the world. In other words, we must have commitment to the same essential truth. We must agree on bottom-line doctrine and bottom-line behavior. We've got to understand the difference between essential and non-essential doctrine. We've got to understand what is bottom-line doctrine, that we must all believe alike. And we've got to understand what is bottom-line Christian behavior, wherein we must all behave alike. And in these things there must be the same thought, the same mind, the same agreement, the same support, the same attitudes, the same responses and actions. We've all heard the saying, in essentials unity, and non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. And I think that very nicely sums up what Peter is saying here. But of course that requires that we understand what the essentials are and what the non-essentials are. And we don't always find that easy, do we? And so we have to continue to study the Word of God. And our interaction in the body of Christ is very helpful in this regard to sort out what indeed is essential and what is not essential. Because sometimes God's people think certain things are essential, which turn out not to be. And sometimes God's people think certain things are not essential, which the Bible declares are. There's no question that we need more unity of doctrine. But it is also evident that we even more need unity of disposition. That center attribute, love, that's kind of the hub of all of this, that is what is needed to make us have unity of disposition, even in areas where we may disagree. All of this, of course, reminds us of how important it is that we have teaching pulpits in the churches of America. And it's sad that in our day we seem to be getting away from that more and more, looking for other things besides the teaching of God's word, the, the explanation and application of God's word in the pulpit. How can we possibly think the same? How can we possibly hope to have unity if we are not hearing the Word of God that we may know it and understand it and come to agree together on what it teaches? That's the best way I know to have unity. Some people have the idea that doctrine divides and the Spirit unites, and so we're going to just downplay doctrine and all unite around Jesus. We're all going to unite around the Holy Spirit, but that's got it exactly backwards. Because the less we know about doctrine, the less we really can be unified in a Christ like way. In that great high priestly prayer in John 17, where Christ prayed for Christian unity, what did he say? He said to the Father, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. The word of God is the truth that sanctifies us individually. The Word of God is the truth that sanctifies us as a church, as a body of Christ. The Word of God is what brings us into unity, into the right kind of conformity. Conformity on essential doctrine, which is nothing less than saying. Conformity on what the Bible actually teaches. Agreement on what the Word of God teaches. And then liberty in those things which are non essential And so the first required attitude to have a good testimony before the world is that churches need to be unified. It is a blight upon the testimony of Jesus Christ that Christians wrangle and fight and war against each other so much. It is a blight on the testimony of Jesus Christ that churches split so easily. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Secondly, compassion. Having compassion for one another is what my new king's James Bible says. The Greek word actually is where we get the word sympathy. That's the word that translates the fourth quality in my Bible, or compassion. A tender-hearted, actually, is what my Bible says theirs. But these words are almost interchangeable, number two and number four: Compassion, sympathy. Having compassion one for another. This Greek word is ten, is translated tender-hearted in Ephesians 4.32. And so you can see that the word that is number two in the list and the word that is number four in the list are really almost synonyms. They come very, very close together. But sympathy, compassion, one for another, concern for others, especially in times of joy and sorrow. Remember what Paul said in Romans Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. At all times we ought to have concern for one another, but especially in those times of great joy or great sorrow, we should enter into these times with others, enter into the celebrations of our brothers in Christ, enter into the times of mourning of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's always encouraging when I see many of you in attendance at a funeral service for a fellow believer in Jesus Christ because that is one way of doing exactly what Peter is teaching us here and what Paul has taught us elsewhere and what the New Testament teaches us in demonstrating sympathy, compassion for others. The third quality is love. Philadelphoi, brotherly love. In secular Greek, this is inevitably used for the normal love that comes between natural brothers and sisters, blood relatives, the kind of love that you normally find within human families, or at least ought to. In the New Testament, however, this word inevitably is used figuratively of members of Christ's body, brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's, of course, how Peter uses it here, we are to love as brothers. We are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ the way that brothers and sisters in a normal human family love one another. In fact, we ought to love our brothers and sisters in Christ better. As Christ taught us that our, our Christian relationship is actually a stronger and more important one than our earthly relationship. Remember when Christ's mother and brothers and sisters came seeking him and somebody said come your your mother's out here your brothers and sisters are out here and Jesus said who is my mother who are my brothers who are my sisters and he gestured to his disciples who were seated around him hanging upon every word that he spoke and he said these are my brothers and sisters and mother and father these who hear my word and so our ties in the body of Christ are actually closer than our blood ties. And those of you who have relatives who are outside of Christ know exactly what I'm talking about because that is so. You come to feel closer to, to have a greater love and a greater relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ than you do even with your own blood brothers and sisters and other relatives. John tells us that loving our brothers is a sign that we are saved. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. If you don't love Christians, if you don't love brothers and sisters in Christ, you must not be a child of God. You must not have been regenerated. And we all know that Jesus said by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's a mark of discipleship. Really, another way of putting the same thing that we saw in 1 John chapter 3. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a true believer in Jesus Christ, then the way the world is going to know that is not necessarily because you wave a flag and say, I am a Christian, put a... Put a lapel button on your suit and say, I am a Christian. And go around and tell everybody, I am a Christian. They will be far more convinced and better impacted with your Christian testimony if they see demonstrations of your great love for one another in the body of Christ. Number four, sympathy or tender hearted or compassion. Again, another Synonym, be tender-hearted. This word that in my Bible is translated tender-hearted, at its root speaks of our internal organs. It is used of a heart, lungs, liver, and so forth. We talk about love coming from the heart, and it's the same idea. In this day, sometimes they talked about love coming from the liver. Try that on your sweetheart. I love you with all my liver. (laughs) In the Old Testament, they talked about intestines, bowels of mercies. And all of these are are basically the same idea. Taking some of our internal organs to, to remind us that feelings go very deep. And this is talking about our deepest emotions, our deepest feelings that come from deep within, really even deeper than anything physical, taking that which is physical as, again, a figure of speech to remind us that we're talking about that which arises from our soul, from the very inner man. Deepest human emotions, especially love and compassion. And in this, again, we are to be like our Savior. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Isn't that verse a wonderful comfort to the people of God? That Jesus knows our weaknesses. Jesus understands our fears and our temptations and our trials and our problems. He not only knows them because he's omniscient, but he knows them because robed in flesh he experienced them. He's a high priest who understands our human condition because he was here. He lived among us. He experienced the human condition, and he does indeed understand our trials. That's a wonderful Savior, a wonderful high priest who represents us before the throne of God. And now the Bible tells us that we, as sons and daughters of God, are to have a similar sympathy toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, reflecting in some ways that which Christ has for us. This also tells me that right feelings can be cultivated. It's hard to command a feeling, an emotion and that's why love for example is first of all an action doing the right thing toward others no matter how we feel but the fact of the matter is that the right emotions can be cultivated over time similar similar to the cultivation of that quiet and gentle spirit that peter recommended for the wives Don't spend so much time trying to cultivate your outward beauty, but spend more time cultivating your inward beauty. It's not something that you snap your fingers and have. It's not something that is commanded and it is instantly done. It is something that is cultivated over a period of time. And the same thing with this. We need to cultivate the right emotions. We can cultivate sympathy. We can cultivate compassion. We start out by acting toward others in the way we know the Bible would have us act, acting toward others in a Christ-like way as the Bible describes it for us, but also working hard to truly enter into the feelings of others because this is commanded us as well. And then finally, humility, number five. Be courteous is what the New King James says. There is a textual variant at this point, and most commentators believe that the word humility is probably the better attested to word here. Though courteous certainly works well in the list and is another attribute that we ought to cultivate. But humility, humble-minded, be humble-minded. That may be the most essential Christian characteristic of all. Pride destroys unity. The first one, be of one mind, is linked to the last one, humility. Pride is what causes so much division in the body of Christ, more actually than standing for truth, than rejecting and, and opposing and standing against that which is wrong. There are certainly at times to do that. There's also the right way to do that. But so many times it is nothing more than sinful pride that causes us to war and wrangle and argue and divide. And we need more humility. Humility does not boast. Humility does not promote itself. Humility is perfectly willing to take the last place, the back seat, the unseen place, the last seat at the table, not the first one right up next to the host, but... The last one, as far away as possible, as Christ taught us. Humility certainly demonstrates Christ-likeness. That's the whole point of that great incarnation passage in Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? Let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what attitude is that? Well, the attitude that caused him to humble himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. That's the attitude. That's what Christlikeness is. Sacrificial giving of self that is only possible when we are humble in spirit. And humility, therefore, promotes unity. And humility promotes greater love. And humility promotes greater compassion with one another in the body of Christ. And so, really, all of these tie together, don't they? I like what John MacArthur said. He said, the joys of our lives in Christ are maximized when we are united in truth, peaceful in disposition, gracious toward others, sensitive to the pains of fallen sinners, sacrificial and loving sacrifice, compassionate and above all, humble like Christ. That maximizes Christian joy. We aren't doing these things for ourselves. We're we're doing them for Christ. We're not doing these things so that, We'll have a happier life. We're doing these things so that we can honor our Lord and have a good testimony before the world. But, surprise, surprise, when we live like this, it also maximizes our joys. We are much happier in Jesus. And so, first of all, Christ-like attitudes, and then secondly, Christ-like responses, and this may be more difficult yet. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Christian behavior in response to personal injury. It's not only important that we have the right actions, but the right reactions are vitally important. Now undoubtedly Peter has the world in view as well as the church when he talks about our responses here this is not only the way we respond to brothers and sisters in Christ but this is the way that we ought to respond to all of those in the world in which we live and how is that well first of all he tells us what Christians must not do before he tells us what Christians should do and what must Christians not do Christians must not return evil for evil Christians must not return reviling for reviling. When we are injured by the sinful actions of others, we are not to try to strike back. We're not to try to injure them in return. A more literal translation might be, stop returning evil for evil. Why did Peter put it that way? Because he knew that they were, at least some of them. (coughs) How did they know that they were? Because this is what comes natural. We don't have to be taught to retaliate. We do that naturally as fallen sons of Adam. We have to be taught not to retaliate. That's what requires great effort. That's what requires help. That's what requires the Holy Spirit of God. That's what requires growing in grace. That's what requires greater sanctification. That's what requires the power of God's word working in our lives. We will naturally lash out at others when they harm us. We have to learn to not do that. Stop rendering evil in return for evil, and that's exactly what the Bible teaches through and through. Paul put it this way in Romans twelve seventeen: Repay no one evil for evil. And again, this way in First Thessalonians five fifteen: See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. That's God's instruction. That's the way Christians are to live. This is what promotes a powerful testimony before a watching world. And this is so very, very difficult because so often we retaliate almost before we think, almost before we know it, we've already done it. And so we have to learn not to. So when we are injured by the sinful actions of others, don't retaliate, don't. Return evil for evil, tit for tat, injury for injury. And maybe even more difficult, when injured by insulting words, don't return similar words. Don't return reviling for reviling. Reviling is abusive speech. Reviling is insults. Reviling is cursing. When somebody really lets you have it, what do you do? Well, I know what you do when you act according to your Adamic nature. You let them have it right back. Say, How do you know that preacher? Hey, I'm a son of Adam. I know. I know. And you know. And we all know because we all have done this. I hope we are learning not to do it, but we have all done this. This is, it just comes so quick. It's just the natural response. You say something mean and nasty to me. Well, I can say something mean and nasty to you. In fact, it almost becomes a game sometimes to say if I can say something meaner, nastier, uh, a more cutting insult than the one that you gave me. See there. See how you like that. That'll teach you. No, no, brothers. No, no, brothers and sisters. Christ teaches us differently. We must not... Respond in kind. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.12, and we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. We don't return reviling for reviling. In fact, do you remember that reviling actually in the Bible is a disciplinary offense? 1 Corinthians 5.11, where Paul is dealing with the immoral man and how the church must discipline him. And he expands the principle of, of discipline and what he's talking about when he says in verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral. That would be the case in the Corinthian church. Or covetous. Think about that one a bit. Covetousness is a disciplinary offense. Or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. It's obvious that there are a couple things on this list that have to be weighed according to the enormity of the offense. Covetousness certainly is one of them. We all covet. If we all got disciplined, Whenever we coveted, the church would be empty, wouldn't it? But we learn not to. We learn not to covet by the Spirit of God. We, we work on that. We cultivate a non-covetous attitude. And likewise with reviling. Evidently, what, Pete, what Paul is teaching us is that those who, who constantly revile, those who have a reputation for reviling, those who will not curb, will not control their reviling, those who go on year after year with with the kind of abusive speech which is unbecoming a Christian need to be dealt with by the church. And if they will not change, they need to be put out. Imagine that. We've gotten so far away from the whole idea of discipline in our day that we don't even know where to begin, do we? This, by the way, helps us understand what is bottom-line essential doctrine and bottom-line essential behavior. It has to do with these areas that we ought to discipline for. That's bottom line behavior. That's bottom line doctrine. Violations in that area, if they are not corrected, and always the the goal is correction and restoration, but when they are confronted and, and uh, corrected, if there is not repentance and restoration, there needs to be removal. A very serious matter. Reviling. Reviling speech. This is more serious, brethren, than we have ever perhaps understood. In short, we must not settle insult and injury on our own terms. We have to settle them on God's terms. And he tells us. He tells us, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. We have to commit these personal injuries into God's hands and trust him to deal with With them for us. And so this is what we must not do. We must not return evil for evil. We must not return reviling for reviling. But what must we do? Well, the opposite. The contrary. Bless those who hurt us. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing. Blessing. The word is where we get the word eulogy, which means to praise, to speak well of. Speak as well of those who insult you as you possibly can. You don't need to lie. God's not calling on you to lie to say things that aren't true, but you don't have to say what is true but is but is wrong, what but is uh, uh, insulting, that is demeaning, is will tear them down, but rather. Say those things that are true that will praise them. You say, that's quite a requirement, quite an assignment, isn't it? Yes, it is. But actually, this goes beyond that. Pronounce a blessing. Pronounce a blessing. A blessing that actually bestows good upon those who injure you. Pronounce a blessing like the patriarchs did in the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who... Pronounce a patriarchal blessing upon their children and upon others. remember when Jacob blessed Pharaoh as a representative of God he pronounced a blessing upon Pharaoh. that's the idea here as children of God we have the ability to do that an ability that we don't know very much about, I'm afraid. but like the patriarchs pronounced a blessing or the priests in the Old Testament pronounced blessing. One of my favorites is in Numbers chapter 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. When the priests Bless them. God blesses them. And don't forget, Peter has already told us that as new covenant believers, we are priests. Remember? We are priests. We can do this. We can bless others. Chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We are priests. We can speak as representatives of God. We can pray for others and bring God's blessing upon them. We can speak words of blessing that God will honor. This is so foreign to us, we hardly know where to begin. But from time to time, someone will say to us, maybe when we go through a checkout line, have a blessed day. God bless you. That's a good place to begin. Blessing. You can even do those That to people who hurl insults at you. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Someone curses you out and calls you every name in the book and you say, God bless you. May God bless you richly. Have a blessed day. Remember, we're talking about how to have a testimony before a skeptical world. We are to bless others and do good to those, even to those who injure us. We know that Christ taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Peter is saying nothing more than what Christ himself said. How often the apostles of Christ reflect Christ's teaching. Peter does, Paul does, John does. They sound like Christ. Why not? They are apostles of Christ who lived with Christ and have the promise of the Holy Spirit who would remind them of the things that Christ said and help them to continue speak the very words of Christ while they were speaking to others upon the earth. And that's what Peter is doing here. Don't revile others, but rather bless, just like Jesus taught us to do. And why should we do this? And here the Greek is rather ambiguous, and so we have our choice. But verse 9 says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. You were called to something. You were called to this. And the question is, what does the this refer to? Does it refer to what goes before it? Or does it refer to what goes behind it? Is this a, a promise or is it a duty? And that's impossible to decide with the Greek language. Knowing that you were called to this, that is, blessing. Returning, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, period. You are called to bless others. And this is the fourth time in Peter's epistle that he reminds believers that we have been called by God. We were called of God to himself. We didn't get where we are by our cleverness, by our good deeds, by our intelligence. We were called by God. Chapter 1, verse 15, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, verse 21 of chapter 2, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You could make a sermon right there. The four things that we were called to. And here's the fourth one. On the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this. And if we understand the phrase that way, then... What Peter is telling us is that this is one of the primary reasons why God saved us. Why did God save us? We'll go back and study these four texts that talk about His calling, and you'll, you'll get a pretty good picture of why God saved us. But one reason God saved us is so that we could be instruments in His hand to bless others. So that we could be like our Heavenly Father. Continuing in the Sermon on the Mount... Why do we bless those who curse us and do good to those who hate us and pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us? Jesus said that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust so that we can be like our Heavenly Father. We are children of our Heavenly Father. We ought to bear His image. We ought to reflect His nature. We ought to show the world what God is like. And this is one of the ways we do this, by being an instrument of blessing to others. And so understood this way, the reason we do this is out of obedience. This is our motive for obedience in order that we can be a divine blessing to others. You are called to bless others. But there's another way to understand it. And that is you are called to inherit a blessing. If this phrase, what you were called to, is attached to the last part of the verse. Knowing that you were called for this, namely, that you may inherit a blessing. Now that is another reason for salvation. We were called by God to inherit a blessing. We were called for the purpose of being blessed by God. One reason we can't choose between these two, in fact, there's even a third one that I won't get into now, but one reason we can't choose between these two is because they're obviously both true. Well, no matter what we decide this particular text is teaching, it's obvious that both are taught in the Word of God. And this is the exact truth. We were called for God to bless us. We weren't called because we were Worth anything. We weren't worthy. We didn't merit anything. God called us to himself instead of giving us what we deserved simply so that he could act like God. So that he could pour blessing out upon the undeserving ones. We have been called to undeserved blessing. We have been called to inherit, not merit. Is that what he said? You were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. When you inherit something, it generally because, maybe because of a, a relationship, a connection, but it's basically because the person who made out the will has decided they want to bestow something upon you. In human terms, sometimes it has to do with human merit. But I can assure you that the Bible is clear in divine terms. It has nothing to do with who we are in ourselves. It has everything to do with who God is in himself. He called undeserving sinners... Let's make it stronger. He called hell-deserving sinners to himself in order to pour out his blessings upon us. And if that's you, if that's you, if you are a recipient of such blessing, then you ought to reflect that to others. Since we have received undeserved blessings we should bestow undeserved blessings upon others. Hard for me to bless those who hurt me. Hard for me to bless those who revile me. They don't deserve it. Right. Right, that's the point. Neither did you. So act like your Heavenly Father and bestow an undeserved blessing. And so what are the lessons we take out of this in closing? Well, we see, number one, something very important about the nature of salvation and something, secondly, about the obligations of salvation. Regarding the nature of salvation, what is it? It is undeserved mercy. It is grace. And blessing those who injure us is simply a reminder of what God did for us. This helps reinforce what grace is. What we have received, or what we claim we have been received, if you find this difficult to acknowledge that your spiritual blessings are entirely and totally undeserved, if you haven't been taught that by God, then evidently you don't have a real work of the Spirit of God in your heart. You don't have a work of grace in your heart, because that's what grace teaches us. Grace teaches us to take The sinner's place. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And if you have been so blessed, then bless that sinner who wronged you. He hasn't wronged you as much as you've wronged God. He didn't injure you as much as you injured God. He didn't revile you as much as you've reviled God. God gave you blessing in the place of injury. Now turn around and bestow that grace upon that wretched sinner. He's just like you were before God poured out his undeserved grace upon you. What a lesson. But it also reminds us of the obligations of salvation, namely to live like the children of God. If we have been made sons of God, then we are obligated to reflect Christlikeness in our attitudes, in our actions, in our humility. And we need to ask God to help us. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, such great blessings for such undeserving sinners. We acknowledge that we are debtors to mercy alone. Of covenant mercies we sing. We acknowledge, O Lord, that if we got what we deserved, we would be in the deepest hell. We acknowledge, O Lord, that if we are alive, that is testimony of your goodness to us. You have not condemned us to eternal perdition yet. And it may be that there are some here today who are outside of Christ, but still are experiencing your goodness in giving them life and sustaining that life and bringing them here today and showing them their sin and showing them a Savior who is gracious and merciful and willing to justify all who come to Him in repentance and faith. Oh, Holy Spirit of God, bring the sinner home, we pray. And help us, your children, to live like Christ, we pray. Amen.